One focus, one subject. Welcome to The Real Story, the podcast that brings together global experts to explain one issue shaping the news. BBC World Service podcasts are supported by advertising. Welcome to The Real Story with me, Ritala Shah, and this week we're going to discuss Sudan. For more than a month, towns and cities in Sudan have been gripped by protests, men and women marching on the streets, chanting peace, justice and freedom. Human rights groups say that several medics are among the 40-plus people who've been killed in clashes with the security forces. was killed while he was trying to perform his, his duty helping those injured in the area. He started explaining that he's a medical doctor. The response he got was simply, you are a medical doctor. Well, we are looking for you. And they took two steps back and they just fired him. They just shot him and then went away. This has never been before under the reign of this regime. And I don't expect the protesters to withdraw from their demands or change their uh, desires. They are persistent to keep this going until it falls or until we all die. Sudan's one of the biggest countries in Africa, but its economy is in trouble. Years of Western sanctions for the wars in Darfur and Sudan's alleged support for terrorism have taken their toll. Formerly a big oil producer, it took a hit when its oil-producing regions went to South Sudan at the time of its independence in 2011. Now, as President Omar al-Bashir travels the Gulf region in search of economic assistance, are these protests a threat to his 30-year rule? In this week's Real Story, we've brought together arguments from all sides to discuss why the demonstrations that began as a protest against price rises have turned into a call for the resignation of the president. On our panel, we have Professor Alex Duval. He's executive director of the World Peace Foundation at Tufts University in Massachusetts. He's been following events in Sudan since the 1980s, writing extensively about the wars and famines. He was also part of the peace mediation team for the Darfur region. He explained to me how President Bashir had managed to stay in power for three decades. We also hear from a protest singer who's fled the country after an encounter with the security forces. They said, Don't sing, get up, stand up. Don't sing, rise up, Sudan. Don't sing all the revolutionary songs of Bob Marley. If you do this again, you're not going to see the sun. Well, that view is also echoed by another of our panel guests, Amjad Farid Al-Tayeb. He's a spokesman for the opposition organisation Sudan Change Now and has been jailed numerous times by the authorities. Now he's in London and he's also a member of the Sudan Doctors Syndicate and he told me why the doctors were specifically targeted by the government. We also invited Gamal Habani. She's the Secretary of Women of the Governing National Congress Party, which is led by President Bashir. She explained that despite the withdrawal of US sanctions, Sudan's still suffering economically and the government's trying its best to mitigate the economic pain that's been caused by the sudden price rise. She says Sudan needs more international support and not criticism. And we turn to the billionaire British-Sudanese businessman Mo Ibrahim for some advice. What solutions can he suggest for the country of his birth? There's a lot to discuss. So let's start with Amjad Farid Al-Tayeb. What do you make of the current protests? Thank you very much for having me. I think for the second month 
of uh, protests that started uh, in uh, middle middle December last year and is still carrying on tells us one thing, that the Sudanese people are rejecting completely and categorically the continuation of the NCP ruling regime headed by President Bashir. People have spoke their, uh, their mind. They are now very clear as having the NCP as the enemy of the people and they demand change. The NCB should go and should listen to the chants of the people with peaceful uh, revolution and peacefully leave power. Peaceful demonstrations that want the end of this government and want the departure of the president, Gamal Habani. Is that how you see them? Thank you for uh, giving me today this opportunity to talk to BBC audience. I think this protest and uh, demonstration is mainly because of the economic situation in Sudan which is have difficulty since uh, more than uh, 25 years of sanctions and their sanctions. And also after the cessation of South Sudan, we lost the oil, the big revenue of the Sudanese economy. This makes a gradually burden upon the economic situation. And it comes it came in the peak on uh, the budget of 2018. And at the end of the year, this demonstration and uprising occurred. Uh, it starts peacefully, calling for uh, economic change and, uh, and subsidies, but it's uh, unfortunately it's changed and uh, transferred to violence and some destructions among the citizens' property and money and buildings and premises. Alex Duval, the length of these protests is clearly something that Amjad Farid Al-Tayeb sees as significant. Uh, Gamar Habani pointing to the economic backdrop, which we will talk about in much more detail later in this edition of the programme. Um, but how would you characterise these protests? Certainly they have been peaceful, but there, there have also been deaths during the clashes between the protesters and the authorities. They are the most um, widespread protests for, for more than 30 years. There's a remarkably robust societal consensus, students, professionals, include, and also many, member, many Islamists, former um, sympathisers or members of this government. They are resolutely non-violent, which is remarkable after more than 30 days and, and in the face of um, quite some violence from, uh, from, from the government. And they have a broad spread of issues that they, are, um, that they are bringing up. And while I have some sympathy for the position of President Bashir, because he has, let's face it, not been, he's, he's not been well treated internationally and he's been in a very difficult predicament, we shouldn't uh, mistake sympathy for legitimacy. He's had many opportunities to democratise, particularly in the last 15 years, and he has signally failed to take those. And the politics of exhaustion has, has turned into the politics of, of, of frustration with the average age of Sudanese being about 20 years and only those who are more than 50 years old ever having had the chance to vote in a truly free and fair election. It's understandable that uh, that people just want change. Well, let's hear from someone who's been out on the streets, in the streets, and can give us a first-hand account of his experience. Young people have been at the forefront of these protests. Muhammad Ali is a popular reggae singer from Sudan. He fled the country to the Netherlands just this week, and he spoke to us about what life is like for young people in the country. We're trying to make a change through our lyrics, you know, our music, which is not easy in Sudan. I mean, the youth, if you go ask them, what's your dream? They tell you, my dream 
is to work, get money and get married. So this is a life. This is not a dream. Life there, it is tough because the government just want us to keep busy. So you don't see what's going on around you. You don't have the time to think, hey, they are really pushing us. And in the end of the month, you're not going to get $50, less than $50. If you are a teacher, a doctor, even you're not going to get enough money. But let me tell you, my people dying. Some are suffering and some. So why do you say you will save our life? Oh no. So why do you say you will never kill no one? It's a big lie. When I'm talking in the song to the president straight, I'm telling him, hey, get up. We are rising up, you know. Let me tell you, people dying, some are suffering, some are crying. Why did you say you will save our life? Rise up, rise up, rise up, people. Rise up, Sudan. Rise up against them. They are using us under the name of the religion. They are telling us that we're doing everything because that was written in the Quran, but they don't tell us the right meaning. And the people, they don't understand the right meaning, so they go what the government tell us. So it's like cheating. I dropped the song at the end of 2018. In the 6th of January, I got arrested. It was a birthday party and I went back home late. Some people, they were following me. I didn't know what's that. And then they stopped me. Hey, you more? I said, yes, I'm more. They push you and I jumped in the car with them. They don't let you see where you're going. You just put your head down. And I went, they took me somewhere that I don't know where is that place. It doesn't look like a jail. It's a room, you know, dark room. It's just a house. And you don't know where's that house actually because it's in the middle of a little town, you know. And then they put you in chair and they throw water on your face and they hit your head. They talk to me like, do you think you are Bob Molly? You think with these songs you can make a change? They forced me actually not to sing a couple of songs. They said, don't sing Get Up Stand Up. Don't sing Zimbabwe. Don't sing Rise Up Sudan. Don't sing all the revolutionary songs of Bob Marley. If you do this again, you're not going to see the sun. That's why I, I right now said, okay, I try to go out, play music somewhere else, then till I go back again. Now you see the light. Stand up for your The voice of people is massive. Power to the people. I was there, I went in the street, and I felt how it is strong. And that's gonna make a change. Now he know he have to leave. My hope for the future, the youth. We are, as a youth, we can make Sudan better. A better Sudan is freedom. A better Sudan is separate religion i'm very proud to say that i'm a muslim but in the same time we have our brothers christians we have people from different religions and we are all in the end of the day one people and it will be a really great sudan Mohammed Ali there. Gamar Habani, he was told, if you do this again, you're not going to see the sun. What does this tell you about how the government's handling these protests? 
I will not comment on this story because everybody could come here and take a mic and tell a story. You know, I know how people are arrested and they, where to go and then how to release. So everybody could tell a story. I will not say this is right or wrong. Everybody could change and imagine a story for himself and tell everywhere. Amjad Farid Altair. Yeah, I want to comment on the uh, degree of violence on the streets and who's causing it, because clearly that the violence that happened in the, in the protests are happening with uh, militias and different forces that affiliated to the NCP, to the ruling party. The, vice, the former vice president, Ali Osman Taha, and the prominent Islamist figure, a few days ago acknowledged the presence of civilian militias that are ready to sacrifice their lives to protect the regime. The many people in uniforms who are in the streets, who are shooting life bullets and killing people, are government affiliated. And clearly that there is unprecedented number of detainees, including too many doctors who were in the streets trying to help the wounded, who has been well, detained. And why, why do you think doctors are being targeted? Uh, not only doctors, but all the professional unions have... Uh, assembled itself in what's called Sudan Professional Association, who have called for this protest. The reason behind that is the collapse of the public service delivery system in Sudan. Doctors and other professionals are unable to uh, conduct their professional okay. and moral duties. Gamal Habani, if I can bring you back in, if, if you don't want to comment on that specific story. But what about the violence? I would like to comment on this. I'm not here to justify some statements by some of the NCP uh, leaders, specific or private context. So everybody could take a statement and then draw a lot of... Okay, but we've seen... But the evidence that that has been acknowledged of the violence, what do you say to that? I think the violence is both parties, police groups and even the protesters themselves. You know now this demonstration is deviated from its peaceful weight. They bring the stones, the biggest stones, they prevent the cars from moving and do all this and preparing themselves to start the violence. Talking or comparing between people trying to block cars who are attacking them and blocking the streets in front of the big touchers and pickup that are full of soldiers holding guns and shooting them and comparing this to people blocking the streets, this is just funny. Alex Duval, the the cause of the violence can be disputed, but there has been violence. Where do you think this will take the protest? There is anger. There's certainly a lot of anger. The history of Sudan is that the only way that a authoritarian government or a military dictatorship has been overthrown has been by nonviolent popular po- protests on the streets. It happened in 1964. It happened in 1985. In 2013, demonstrations were, were ruthlessly put down. And we saw it again in the Arab Spring in, 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 in other countries. And so what, the, what President Bashir is most afraid of is a popular uprising that is non-violent. And of course, there will be agents provocateurs who will be posted among the protesters. Insofar as the security agents can provoke violence among the protesters, turn it into attacks on shops, on restaurants and so on, they will, the protesters will begin to lose the sympathy of the population. But I think the, the fact that we have had more than four weeks of, of sustained protests in multiple cities, many of them well away from the glare of publicity in towns like Atbara, like, like Gadaref, like Medani, as well as Khartoum, and the level of violence has been 
as low as it is. I think this reflects on the very, very strong social consensus against this regime and, and the strength of the demand being made to President Bashir that it is time for him to well, go. Let, let's talk about President Bashir a little bit more. How would you describe him as a man? He's always underestimated. People always thought that he was a, a simple soldier without many political skills, without much education, etc. But he ha- he is very street smart, and he has one particular remarkable skill, which is he's very personable, and he know he has an encyclopedic knowledge of who's who. He remembers people, he remembers their families, and what he's managed to do over over almost thirty years in power is have detailed personal knowledge of the um, officer corps of the army, the senior echelons of national intelligence. And that type of personal knowledge means that his own personal patronage networks are unsurpassed. He's like the spider at the middle of an enormous web. And no one actually in this regime can replace him in that regard, which is why um, even though he himself may want to go, he's not been in good health, he's been quite tired, he's talked about stepping down for some years. Um, Those around him recognise that there is nobody with this skill set for maintaining a highly centralised, highly personalised, very cleverly disguised um, system of of patrimonial rule. other feature I want to just to mention is that he's everybody's second choice. Um, anyone who's a senior officer may want to mount a coup and become president, but they, there's one thing that they respect with President Bashir, which is he doesn't sacrifice his own people. He may arrest you, he may remove you, but he won't kill you. Gamal Habani, I imagine you've had interactions with the president. How would you describe him? I, I know everybody has its opinion against the other party. I would like to tell you something. President Bashir is uh, well-educated. He is one of the African leaders who have been respected uh, and a great, very high level of relations between the Africa. And he has influenced his, even among African leaders. He succeeded to bring the brothers in South Sudan when other African institutions failed to do so. President Bashir is a very brave man. He led Sudan for 30 years in a very difficult regime. He protected Sudan for 30 years from international interference. On President Bashir, I will agree on uh, Gamer's propaganda in one point, that President Bashir is a very distinguished man as being the only sitting president who is entitled to the ICC. He has very distinguished tactic on defied and rule, not only on the opposition, but his own party. He, he, he is uh, very funded to building too many militias and turning them against each other and being in the middle, in the centre of all this, so everybody is afraid to do a coup. Gamal Hamani, how do you perceive the president, even given this indictment by the ICC, and this sense that this is a man who has shored up his power through... ICC is a political issue. ICC know who is making aggressions on nations. 
and we know how therefore uh, therefore uh, conflict have been uh, globalized and uh, international community try to devise Sudan with this. ICC is a political issue. It's not our issue okay. here and we are not part of ICC. Okay, and I should explain that that's the International Criminal Court we're talking about. Um, but, but on this specific idea <laughs> then that he's shored up his power by in a sense using, surrounding himself by the military, getting to know the military and creating militias which will underpin that too. Is that, do you think that's a fair way to describe how he's held on to power? Where are these militias? No militias. This is official forces. This is security forces and police forces. No militias. We can Everywhere count, we can the, count the popular defense force, the rapid support forces, which is a restructured Jengenid militia. We can, count the, we can count the border guards. We can count the national intelligence and security forces. We can count Abu Taira bridges. I want to, I want to give Gemara a, a chance to answer that. There are these named militias, many of which will be familiar to our listeners. It's not militias. It's all official forces with regulations and laws. OK, not- I, I want to just move on to talk about the nature of the opposition within Sudan. Amjad, I imagine that that's something you know a little bit about. How strong is the opposition, if you like, official or unofficial within Sudan? Yes, uh, opposition for the last 30 years, as I said, President Bashir and the NCP played uh, defied and rule for very long. And yes, there were divisions among the political parties in the opposition for very long. However, in the past few years, they came into two big alliances, which include everyone uh, as well. There is uh, new movements and the professional trade unions, which also formed the Sudanese Professional Association since 2012. These now form a collective leadership under the Declaration of Change and Freedom, which people have accepted its leadership. This tells you this is organized and this has leadership and has a plan for the transition. Alex Deval, from your perspective, is the opposition as, as organized as Amjad describes? But of course, there's no way to learn democracy and democratic organization except by practicing it. And one of the problems of Sudan has been over the last 15 years that the the different attempts to have a democratic opening have always not exactly been squashed, but have been manipulated. The leaders have been bribed. um, The opposition parties have been bought off so that typically there'll be one faction that falls in with uh, President Bashir and one that goes into the opposition. So the opposition is doesn't look very coherent at the moment. But the argument that there shouldn't be a change because the, the, uh, the alternatives um, are not as organised as we would like is really not a strong argument. It's an argument for a managed transition, not, a, a, not an argument for, for, for no transition at all. And if I could just make one point about the ICC, I think the most unfortunate thing about the arrest warrant against President Bashir ten and a half years ago, is that it it has given him nowhere to go apart from staying in the palace. So there have been repeated indications that the president would like to step down, but he can only step down if there are some guarantees for his own personal security that he's not going to be handed over um, to face trial. And surely, um, I would say to the opposition, the fate of Sudan is a much, much bigger issue than the fate of this uh, one man. And this is one thing that they ought to consider 
putting on offer, that okay. they will do a, the sort of amnesty that uh, allowed uh, General uh, President Ibrahim Aboud in 1964 to step down. That's a point I hope I we can... can... Agree, I can agree to Alex's last, last point on the ICC, but let's differentiate between two processes, that the political processes is one thing and justice and accountability okay. is another thing, and they were they are both to be respected and we have that, to have venues. For that's it. a point I'd like to come back to, but we have to take a short break now. Thank you to our panel, Alex Deval, Amjad Farid Altayeb and Gamar Habani. And just to remind you, you're listening to a podcast edition of The Real Story from the BBC World Service, this week looking at Sudan. Each week we tackle a different topic and you can download the programme every Friday. I encourage you to subscribe so you won't miss an edition. There are also many other BBC World Service podcasts to choose from. You could try Witness, our history series told by the people who were there. First-hand accounts of some of the most important events which have helped to shape our lives and the places we live. There are five podcasts a week and an incredible archive to delve into. Do please let us know what you think of this podcast from The Real Story or any ideas for topics you'd like us to look into. You can email us, therealstory at bbc.co.uk. But now, let's get back to this edition of The Real Story with Rithula Shah looking at Sudan and my guests. Professor Alex Deval from Tufts University in Massachusetts, Amjad Farid Altayeb, a spokesman for the opposition organisation Sudan Change Now and a member of the Sudan Doctors' Syndicate, and Gamar Habani of President Bashir's National Congress Party. Welcome to you all. We've talked a bit about the nature of the protest and about President Bashir, but let's discuss the economic backdrop. Gamar Habani, how would you describe the state of Sudan's economy? What are the problems facing the country? Sudan was under, for more than 25 years, under uh, economic sanctions, very aggressive economic sanctions. And this affected all the life. And even though there is a development in the country and in the states, education, health, social protection, 2018, Fajit was very strong in some measurements and also the cessation of South Sudan and the loss of oil revenues to the uh, national economy, and also the mismanagement and the corruption also made like some shadows on the economic situation. So this year was very fell down for the Sudanese currency, which affected all social life. But also there is arrangements and the measurements for social protection supporting and subsidizing the poorest people among the Ministry of Social Welfare and uh, the health insurance for the poorest, supporting all people so as to overcome this economic crisis. And I think uh, now this crisis is not only in Sudan, but some vulnerabilities in Sudan led to this. I think with this budget, which have been announced by the Prime Minister, will make some support for 2019 economic budget. So I think there is a lot of arrangements. And also I would like to comment on the political situation in Sudan. 2014, President Bashir called for the national dialogue, one of the biggest projects for Sudanese. And this announcement was accepted by a large number of political parties. And for three years they sat together, discussed, and they have like 960 recommendations. Alex Duvall, undoubtedly, years of sanctions have played their part. The loss of oil revenues would also have played its part. But Sudan is not a poor country. In 2017, its economy was $117 billion. That's twice the size of Libya. And yet there clearly are severe economic problems. 
I think there are two sides to this story. On the one hand, I do have some sympathy for the government of Sudan on the issue of sanctions, because the sanctions were initially imposed for terrorism, and then the government of Sudan began to cooperate on counterterrorism quite extensively with the US. So the US shifted the goalposts, and they demanded peace in the south. Peace in the south was signed in 2005, and then the goalposts were shifted again to Darfur, and then they were shifted again to allowing the peaceful separation of South Sudan. And Senator John Kerry, then the special envoy for President Obama made a specific pledge that if President Bashir were to allow the South to secede peacefully, which he did, the US would lift sanctions, which it didn't. So I have some sympathy for the government of Sudan on this. On the other hand, Sudan has had a huge oil bonanza in the decade from 2000 to 2011. And that huge windfall was very largely squandered. And the biggest thing that it was squandered on was the military and security, which consumed an inordinate amount of the budget. And even after the separation of South and the loss of most of the oil revenues, the military budget has not been cut. In fact, it's been kept secret, so we really don't know how large it is. And there's been gross corruption, and it's not just a shadow over the economy of individuals. It is a systemic corruption, which is actually at the heart of the way in which President Bashir and his people actually rule the country. The um, way in which they I, keep I, themselves in power um, is by channeling rewards to their supporters. Um, economy is not the problem. Economy is one representation of the problem. The real problem is the political corruption, and I will provide my colleague Gamer with some numbers on social security, health, and education. On 2018 budget that's announced, the government spend only 5% of its announced budget on these three sectors collectively, while most of its public expenditure was in security and defense, which are not productive sectors. As well, corruption goes beyond that. Even after the separation of Sudan, Sudan received enormous deposits and money from the Gulf countries for different reasons. In 2015, Sudan received $1.5 billion from Gulf countries, which never appeared in the sheets of Bank of Sudan. In 2016, Sudan received loans from the Arab Monetary Fund that exceeded $750 million USD with interest rate 3 to 4%, and this was also directed to the rapid support forces and security forces. Kamal Habani, has has too much money been spent on security and defence at the expense of schools, doctors, the fundamental social needs of the country? I don't think so. I think there is a lot of money spent in development. We have around 30,000 kilometres of paved roads, although there is no money. Some of government funds are not money. It's like investments and some support to some development projects. It's not money. It's not as big as that. I would like just to take an example. Before 1989, there was only five universities in all Sudan. Now there are more than 200 universities. At that time, we have only 2,000 students in universities. Now we have more than 400,000. We have more than 60 medical colleagues. All this can pull in development.
Let's hear another view from Mo Ibrahim. Born in Sudan, he's a telecoms billionaire who heads the Mo Ibrahim Foundation, which aims to encourage better governance in Africa. And it gives a prize to leaders who are judged to have led their country well. And it's also established the Mo Ibrahim Index, which evaluates nations' performance on criteria like rule of law, human rights, economic development and so on. Well, I took a short walk from the BBC to his office. Hello, hi, I'm Ritala Shah. Lovely to meet Mo you. Yes. Nice to meet you. Hi, I'm Mo Ibrahim. You want a cup of tea or a coffee? We've just had one, thank you. It was very welcome. So we've come into your rather lovely office that overlooks one of London's leafy squares. And in front of us, I just want to ask you, there are some great photographs. The middle one shows tens of women smiling at the camera. And to the right, there's a photograph of a couple of boys, a young boy and an older boy in a boat. Tell me a little bit more about these. We held a competition on our 10th anniversary trying to seek the views of ordinary Africa about the continent. We asked school children, we asked amateurs, we asked professional photographers. And what came out was thousands of amazing photographs, how ordinary people see the continent. Some of them are optimistic, some are really sad, some here celebrating the power of the new African women and the the togetherness. It is such a diverse... And we collected all that in a book. We call it My Africa. We wanted to talk about the protests. So you have these protests that were initially triggered by a rise in the price of bread. But now people are calling for a change of government. From your perspective, how do you see Sudan and what do these protests tell you about the country? What's happening in Sudan is that people are fed up. After 30 years... The life of ordinary people is just going in a downward spiral. We have people who have tight grip of power. 70% of the budget of the government is allocated to security, army. How much is left for education, health, agriculture, development, roads, electricity? And uh, this 70% is no transparency about where this money goes. So we have a regime which is utterly corrupt and just bent on enriching itself. And they created so many militias and rapid response forces. These are military organizations parallel to the army and the police and the security. And that is a very dangerous situation that's happening there. But people were fed up. They just cannot live, cannot buy bread which is a stable and the cheapest thing for people's life. So they have nothing to lose. People are fed up, they're out on the streets. How significant do you think these protests are? There have, of course, been protests in the past. Is there a comparison with Egypt or Tunisia, for instance? I think this is probably much more. If you remember the protests in Egypt was at Tahrir Square, in the middle of Cairo, that's it. The protests in Sudan... It's in every single town and village in everywhere. And this is a massive popular movement without any leadership. People just got fed up and got out. The message is clear. I mean, it's really time to change. Your foundation has a, an index of governance. Sudan doesn't fare very well on that. You give out awards to leaders who show good governance and you don't always give that award out if you don't think there's a deserving candidate. Bearing all that in mind, then, how would you describe President Bashir? How much blame would you place on his shoulders for the state that you clearly feel that Sudan is in, your criticism of Sudan? 
Sudan ranks 49th out of 54 countries. Given that we have places like Somalia and we have also South Sudan, which is another failed state, is dismal. Is dismal. And it just lies at the door of Bashir and his clique. Who else is responsible? So what would you like to see happen? I think Bashir should go. And he should try to go in peace. should try to stop killing people, shooting at people. And he and his, you know, will be accountable for every drop of blood. And his guys, I mean, his speaker of the parliament, his generals, they come on TV, and even Ali Osman, one of the leaders of the Islamic movement, they come on TV and they threaten... Uh, People in very crude terms will cut off heads, will unleash our militias. They need to know these are all crimes against humanity. And one day they're going to face justice. And so people need to be careful. The justice hand is long, and the justice arm is long. It can reach those people. There is, of course, an, an indictment by the ICC against President Bashir, but do you see any outside intervention? Do you see the West or the, the EU, the US intervening in Sudan? I don't see an appetite for intervention after Iraq, after Syria, after Libya, etc., and all these misadventures. And I wouldn't recommend that even if there's appetite. This Sudanese problem should be solved by Sudanese people. All what we ask is a pressure from the international community just to make sure there is no more blood on the street. The brutality of these security forces is terrible. But in this context, are you optimistic that there could be a peaceful transition? I am an optimistic person, and I always try to look up for some hope to move forward. If those guys stop shooting at people and they accept peaceful transfer of power, people say, fine, we can ask the Security Council to boot off year on year the indictment by the behaviour. I hate impunity. I campaigned for the four, I campaigned. But if that, we're going to save lives, we're happy to do that because I don't see any other way for peaceful transformation. Also, given that these guys back to the wall, they have all this money they collected legally, they have the blood in their hand, they have, those guys will fight, will unleash all their forces out there, their militias. We don't want that to happen. Mo Ibrahim there. Gamal Habani, he's extraordinarily critical of a country that he clearly loves. What do you say to the criticisms about the level of government expenditure, corruption and his call for a peaceful transition? If you want to say things like this, don't tell this to me because I'm a politician and I know who is behind this. It was a peaceful protest, but some political parties and groups comes into this and have a specific agenda and wants this agenda to go to the end. I know there is uh, corruption in Sudan and we admitted this and there is a lot of legal measurements and administrative management to slow down and to stop this corruption. The budget for 2019, it's a difference from last year that comes with specific projects and programs, all for social protection. Also, they increase the subsidy for health and education from 5% to 9%. But if I can ask you about something that you just said, you talked about these protests wanting to see some other end. What do you understand that to be? Do you believe what they want is the government to change? 
I think the government is not a small organization. The government is a strong government with political parties, which is all administrative bodies. It's not an NGO to take them like this. I'm just very dull tired. I'm very you, happy you... that uh, our colleague Gamer have recognized that their expenditure on health and education and social security was 5%. They have 30 years to make improvement in their expenditure and in the way that they're ruling the country. We are now faced by the result of 30 years, three decades of corruption and mismanagement and embezzlement of public so, funds. So in the current context then, Mo Ibrahim was very clear he doesn't want to see any international intervention except for some kind of pressure perhaps. Yes. But what are the chances then of a peaceful transition, given that there are these protests already on the streets? You're not going to see this government just sort of wave goodbye. How do you see this moving on? First, there is no way and no one wants the international intervention and the international community itself is not willing to intervene. There is clientistic relation between the international community and the NCP ruling regime that serves the interests of the Western countries in general in Sudan. The shady plan to stop the migration that named Khartoum process is being serving the interests of the EU by the hands of the rabbit support force and Janjaweed militias and the EU seems to be happy of this. The UK continue on its strategy strategic dialogue with Sudan for its third years. The U.S. seems happy with the cooperation in terrorism in Libya with the Sudanese government, but it is the demand of the Sudanese people okay. and it is the will of the Sudanese people to change this regime. And this will, will happen because Bashir cannot continue ruling 40 million persons who don't want him or the NCP. Just to give some context on the cartoon process that you refer to began in 2014 and it focuses on improving human rights and tackling the root causes of instability and irregular migration. So to some extent that means money is given by the EU to the government in Sudan and to other organisations that are working in Sudan and it is about tackling what the EU sees as its problem with migration. And the government of Sudan have announced that it gave this duty to the rapid support forces, which is a restructured Janjaweed militias that was assigned repeatedly by the UN Security Council as one cause of the instability and criminal offences in Darfur. Alex Duval, this if you like, uh, relationship between the EU, the US, I think the CIA is said to have its biggest office in the Middle East in Khartoum. Does that make it unlikely that anybody will challenge President Bashir and this government and also the experience of the instability of the Arab Spring? I think those are both very relevant. I think the the general approach of the international community is we would rather have Bashir, the devil we know, than instability and chaos, given what we've seen in Libya and, and Yemen and so on. And then there are each country that is involved in, in has some interest in Sudan, also has particular interests in, in the status quo. So, for example, Saudi Arabia has an interest because there are several thousand Sudanese fighting in Yemen, paid for by Saudi Arabia on behalf of the Saudis. The Americans, in particular, also don't want to destabilize Bashir because, as Gamar mentioned, President Bashir is the architect of the current peace deal in South Sudan, which is a very fragile peace deal. And it's deeply ironic that a president of Sudan would be the one to actually construct a peace deal to resolve the civil war in South Sudan. And for the the United States, which is deeply invested in some sort of stability and solution for South Sudan, they don't want to upset that. So for all these reasons... It's very unlikely that we would see international action against Bashir. That said, 
I think clearly the writing is on the wall and it, it is necessary for um, the African Union or the Arab League or the United Nations or whoever to begin a process, perhaps quite quietly, for a really genuine national dialogue, not a national dialogue that at the end of the day has President Bashir and his people pulling the strings so that they stay in power, but a national dialogue that is aimed at an actual transition in power, which can allow those who control the uh, the security agencies, who have the potential for destabilizing, upsetting anything, for them to step aside quietly and for a much broader, more representative, more democratic, more forward-looking government to, um, to come to Sudan. But you raised this earlier. Uh, you talked about this indictment of President Bashir by the International Criminal Court. He does travel to friendly countries regularly. He isn't afraid of being arrested. But To some extent, isn't this going to be a block then for him to stand down? He's obviously concerned about his future, his arrest. Is that something, in a sense, that could be negotiated away? It's less of a block than it was because the African Union as a whole has now taken a a stand against handing over heads of state and former heads of state to the ICC. So there are places where uh, Bashir could go in the region, of course, he could also go to Saudi Arabia or the Emirates or Qatar, who I'm sure would protect him. But the real question is not so much him, but the people around him who would not get the same level of, of public scrutiny and attention. And that it really is a question for the Sudanese to resolve. It can't be resolved um, internationally. So there needs to be a political consensus on how to handle the question of accountability, not just for human rights violations, violations of international humanitarian law, but also for corruption. How to handle those in a way that does not sufficiently antagonise very, very powerful people that they would rather have a reversion to dictatorship or still worse, a civil war than a transition. This is a really, really tricky question without an obvious answer. Well, back in 2016, President Bashir spoke to the BBC's Thomas Fessy, and this is what he said about his retirement from politics. One of the most difficult jobs here is being the president of Sudan. There are lots of problems around us and the country is targeted from different sides. The Sudanese people are highly political. This job is very exhausting, but this will be my last term and it will end in 2020. So this is your last mandate? Yes, my last mandate, inshallah. And in 2020, there will be a new president? In 2020, there will be a new president. And I will be an ex-president, God willing. Gamal Habani, that's President Bashir speaking in 2016. Do you think it's likely that that pledge will be fulfilled? <laughs> I think this refers to the National Congress Party institutions. So he's talking about standing down as, as leader of your party, but not from the presidency. Now we are preparing for the fifth conference of the party on April. Always discuss this inside the institutions. Amjad, you're laughing. Yeah, I'm laughing because I hear the same pledge in 2010 that he will not be running in 2015. And the institution of the NCB have already announced the, on the Majlis Ashura, the council, which is the second higher. They have a recommendation for al-Bashir to change the constitution and to allow al-Bashir to running again. And the question is, it's not how many times 
you will change the constitution. And would the NCB, is, is it only Bashir or it is the whole system of the NCB? The NCB as a ruling party is a corrupt regime, is a corrupt party which have taken the country hostage to the... Mahabani, is that how you see your party? You've taken the country hostage? I think this is 30 years, started with a revolution, but a coup. like... Sorry, Ed it Mubani, was a coup against a democratic elected government. In a democratic it, way, yes. and they open and uh, bring the political parties again to the political life, and we have an election in 2015, and we have also election in 2010, and now we have an election in 2020. I think all political parties should be prepared for this. Why political parties don't want these elections? In the last few minutes that we have, I want to ask each of you how you see Sudan's future. Is change inevitable? Amjad. I think that it's an illegitimate and illegal regime. It came with a coup. This is shows the illegitimacy and its action towards its people shows the illegality with the crimes that committed against the peaceful protesters and that have been committed against people in Darfur, Brunei, Nuba Mountain, Port Sudan. The too many victims who lost their lives or been tortured, including myself, in this detention several times and including Amel Habani, the sisters of my colleague, who is a brave journalist who have been detained several times in Sudan. So this illegality cannot continue forever. Bashir has to go, the NCB has to go, and we have to have an inclusive transition towards a democratic country that has a government that actually serves its people. Kamal Habani, do you think that the writing is on the wall for this government as it stands now? I think everybody who wants the power should wait and prepare for 2020 and be brave to do this not to try to go behind the things. I think this is a long story and a history of Sudan. There is a coups and then a transfer to a democratic life and political life. National Congress Party announced its reform policy in 2013 and it started since that time to open and prepare the political life for, for everybody and for all parties. And since that, a lot of parties who they were outside are now inside and they can tell their views. And now they have the chance to prepare for 2020 and all have the playground for transparent election. And what about the 2,000 political leaders who are being detained right now in Khartoum in these detentions? Alex Deval, I'm going to bring you in. One of the saddest things about Sudan and particularly the current leadership of Sudan is they've had many, many opportunities to create peace, to transition towards democratization, more inclusive government, and they always miss those chances. They always ask the people to delay, they always overplay their hand, they always insist that they must have control over the process. If President Bashir is to go down in history with a a fairly decent reputation, this is the opportunity that he should not miss for getting ahead of the political process, recognising that change is inevitable and starting the process of him surrendering power to the Sudanese people without any further delay. Alex Deval, Amjad Farid Al-Tayeb and Gamal Habani, thank you all very much. That's it for this week on The Real Story. From me and the whole team, that's The Real Story for this week. Thank you for listening.